Uh, welcome, everyone. Um, thank you for attending this last session of the afternoon. Uh, the governor and I, I guess, are the last thing standing between you and beer and barbecue, so uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll try to send you off in good form. Uh, I'm Dan Baltz. I work for the Washington Post. I've covered politics there for a long time. This is Governor Steve Bullock of Montana. I will give him a better introduction in a minute, but I have a few housekeeping chores that I need to get to. Uh, we're going to go for an hour. Um, I'm going to ask questions for 40, 45 minutes and then throw it open to all of you and uh, fire away when you get the chance. Um, please silence your cell phones. Uh, if you do any tweeting, remember that the hashtag is hashtag TribFest17. Um, and if you do have a question, please make sure it's a question and not a long statement. So um, I, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here with uh, Governor Bullock. Um, he is a native of Montana. He was born in Missoula. He uh, did his undergraduate work at Claremont McKenna and uh, a law degree from Columbia Law School. He worked in state government back in Montana and then he was in uh, private law practice in Washington for several years. Uh, while there, he was an adjunct professor at uh, George Washington University. In 2008, he was elected Attorney General of Montana. Four years later, he was elected as governor. Last year, he was elected, re-elected to a second term. He's also a past chair of the Democratic Governors Association, and he has recently formed a political action committee, which has been seen by some people as a sign of possible interest in politics beyond the Montana borders at some point, and we may get to that later. Uh, you aren't any relation to the governor, the lieutenant governor, Bob Bullock, from this state, are you, or are you? You know, I've only been in Austin once, and <clears throat> I did say at a number of places when I was trying to get a table, I'm Bob Bullock's great-great-grandson. <laughs> and it worked. So in New York, I say I'm related to Sandra Bullock. Here, I say Bob Bullock, but in both instances, no relation, Dan. Good. All right. Now that we've got that straight and know how you use it nonetheless. Um, <laughs> I want to start, the, the, uh, the, the latest issue of Time Magazine, the cover image is of a gigantic elephant with a tiny donkey sort of in the snout of its trunk, uh, and with the big letters shrunk, and, and then other language on the cover that says essentially Democrats are in the worst shape they have been in since the late 1920s. Um, you know, Democrats don't control the White House, they don't control the House, they don't control the Senate, Republicans have 34 governorships, um, and total control in many, many more states, gubernatorial and legislator, uh, than the Democrats. Um, interestingly, Republicans have held the governorship for at least some period of time over the last decade in 46 of the 50 states. Montana is not one of the Montana is one of the four <laughs> where they haven't. Uh, but I, I, we want to talk. I'd like to talk to you today about the Democratic Party um, and what are the differences between red state Democrats and blue state Democrats to the degree there are. But but start with the with the question of what I mean. Given what has happened to the party, why did it happen? Why why are the Democrats in the kind of shape they're in, not just in Washington but around the country? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you could look at it for in any number of different ways, one of which is that you've had outside money and dark money groups for a long time suggesting, well, the where to begin on the Republican side is in our state legislatures, and they've been investing there. I mean, I remember when I was running for attorney general, there was this uh, group called the uh, Republican State Leadership Council, and they took all, you know, they were interested in not only legislative races, every statewide race, um, and AG. So part of it is the way that the sheer politic part of it may well be that groups have been investing to try to change this with a longer-term strategy, um, and Democrats haven't. Now, the philosophical part, our greater part, is I think that we as Democrats have to make sure that um, we're speaking about things that are relevant to voters and individuals, recognizing that the vast majority of people don't have time or 
you know, I mean, they don't live in a political world like you do. And is the message both of what we're saying and what we're doing consonant, consistent with um, their concerns? So what's, what's the difference between a red state Democrat and a blue state Democrat? I don't, you know, I, I don't think in many respects. Um, like if I look at, uh, so Montana, my legislature is almost two-thirds Republican. So maybe on the one hand it would change the way that I approach things, but we passed one of the most progressive campaign transparency laws in the country, saying 60 days out. I don't care what sort of tax status you want to try to hide behind, you can't spend without disclosing. We passed Medicaid expansion. We have 80,000 Montanans covered. Uh, we passed this last time. How difficult was that fight? <laughs> you got an hour? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, uh, so Montana was the last state legislatively to expand Medicaid. And um, at the same time that we were trying to do so, also, Americans for Prosperity were spending a lot of money trying to sway my almost two-thirds Republican legislature. But once we actually got outside of Helena and talked to folks in communities, I mean, I never forget, Shoto, Montana is 1,700 people. Went up there with a Republican legislator. Could walk in that room and look around, and you know, I don't think any of them, pretty safe bet, I think I opened it up like, don't think you were Bullock voters in 2012. <laughs> but once you start talking about actually listening to them and saying 40% of the people that walk through those hospital doors didn't have health insurance. If they lose that hospital, they've lost that rural community. And then they could cut through what was being put in their mailbox and all this talk about Obamacare and say, you know what? This will impact our community. Of course it's the right thing to do. Insurance, uninsurance gone from 20%, one in five Montanans in 2013 to um, about 7% today. Hmm. Uncompensated care, the lifeline to keep those hospitals open was 25, is down 25%. Now, on the one hand, you'd say, well, I might have structured it a little bit different if my legislature was two-thirds Democrat. But the difference is 80,000 Montanans now have health care. I think that if you look at a, what's the difference between a Democratic or a red state Democrat and a blue state? Mind you, it probably depends on who that individual is, but the way that I govern, I'm not sure would be fundamentally different if I was in what would be viewed typically as a blue state. Hmm. Um, you won, obviously, last November at the same time Donald Trump carried Montana. So there's some overlap, at least, Hard to say how much, but th some overlap of people who voted for you and for Donald Trump. Um, two questions. What was the fundamental appeal of Donald Trump in your state? Mm -hmm. And second, what's the nature of the crossover appeal that the two of you have? Yeah, so, and for all of you that aren't uh, consistent students in Montana politics, like I'd expect you all to be, <laughs> Uh, in 2016, there were more ads run in the state of Montana in governor's race than any state in the country. My opponent spent over $6 million of his own dollars. The record before for any one individual even raising money in their own campaign account, I think, was $1.9 before that. Donald Trump won by 20 points. And uh, somehow, after Election Day, I won by almost five. And when you look at it, that there are many people throughout that wanted to say, well, those Trump voters are. And I'm like, those Trump voters are my voters. 20% of my voters also voted for Donald Trump. I think that the fundamental um, appeal was two things. One of which is that those voters thought that Montanans thought Donald Trump would fight for them, for them. And they knew I would fight for them. So at the very base part of it, just the most basic piece is who's going to be working and fighting for me? Um, certainly we come at it different approaches. 
But I'd also say that um, one of, I guess, the national pieces, the message that I try to underscore is that you got to show up. Meaning that, so I'm a state of 147,000 square miles. Be it that hospital in Shoto when I'm governing or when I'm campaigning, I go to a lot of places where it's pretty safe to say that the majority of those folks won't vote for me. Yet actually showing up matters. Listening to them matters. Talking about what the values are that we share. And though we have that hardy three electoral votes, um, even Donald Trump showed up during this election. Yeah. And we certainly didn't see much of a presence when, when from you, Secretary Clinton. When, when you look at the national result, um, again, not the popular vote because she did win that, yeah. but when you look at kind of the distribution of states won and lost, um, did, do you think that Secretary Clinton lost that election because she was a Democrat or because she was Hillary Clinton? In other words, how much of the loss to Trump is on the party and the, the image of the party in a lot of these states that ultimately ended up voting for him? Yeah, I mean, in, in some respects, that's beyond my pay grade and what you figure out. Um, I think that as a general matter and looking forward, Part of the problem that Democrats may well have, and going back to your first question of how did we get here, is if I, and I do fundamentally believe that most folks actually want the same thing, right? They, you want a safe community. You want good schools. You want clean air and clean water. You want a roof over your head. You want a good job and you want to fundamentally believe you can do better for that next generation. But in a sense, that's, that, those are sort of universal values. Those, words, a, 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 yeah. a, a, most Republicans and most Democrats would agree with those values. I think that's right. And then how, both how do we get there, but then do we actually recognize that um, most people have those values and even if this person looks or talks or lives in a place different than I am, then I can both tap in those values and say, here's how Democrats can go forward. Yeah. So um, to go directly to your question, I mean, I think we can slice and dice a lot. Was it the candidate or the party? Um, I'm hopeful that we are soon going to get past the navel gazing of 2016 and say, what do we have to do? What do Democrats have to do to make sure that those folks, wherever they are, in Montana or in Wisconsin or in San Francisco, know that we are going to be fighting for them. Know that we are actually looking out for their interests. And I'm not sure that that was sufficiently communicated at a national level yeah. um, in 2016. You make a very interesting point, which is that we are still, we're, you know, we're almost a year past the election and we're still in the election. I, I was at a session the other night um, with Selena Zito, who's a <coughs> fellow journalist and who lives in the Pittsburgh area and, and understood Trump better than most of the rest of us and, and saw it coming more than some of the rest of us did. Um, and she said, We're, it's like we are still at election night to 2016. What is it about what happened that we can't quite get past? Well, I, I think that conventional wisdom or being dang near every journalist in America um, said now that Secretary Clinton was going to win. I think a lot of people, you know, that it's probably safe to say that a lot of uh, the Trump campaign were even fairly surprised. Mm -hmm. So trying to unpack or dissect how that happened, I think is where a lot of people have spent a lot of time. Now, I'm not sure that we can learn from that, um, but I'm not sure that spending that much more time on it. Do you see any change in, in uh, the, the voters in your state um, in terms of Trump voters? How do they feel about President Trump today compared to what they were thinking on election night 2016? Uh, and similarly for Democrats, what's the sort of the mood of, of them? 
In Montana. In Montana. Um, yeah. what's, what's, the, what's the state of the parties in Montana and, and the state of the Trump constituency sure. in Montana? Sure. Now, now it was interesting in, uh, you know, on the inauguration weekend, they had the women's marches all around the nation. And in Montana, there were 10,000 people that showed up at our state capitol. I don't know if you canceled hunting season, you'd even get 10,000 people. Um, there was never a gathering of that size. So I think individuals are energized, um, as in Montana, just like all around the country, to say that uh, we all deserve better. And we all deserve better in governing. As far as the polling that I've seen, that um, President Trump's lost some ground in Montana. And it's not, like, I think what uh, the independent prosecutor is just doing is so important for the vitality of our democracy. But if you're in Montana, that might be on page six in a small little article. Do people uh, that you are in contact with, whether it's legislators or you know everyday folks um, talk much about the Russia investigation think much about the Russia investigation believe that the Russians did something nefarious well yeah and that's my point I think that I mean people some people that I talk to certainly think something's up there and but that what's occupying the space and the bandwidth of people isn't this Russian investigation, it's, well, he said he was going to do X, Y, and Z, and they haven't seen a lot coming out of Washington, D.C. So it's, it's from the what's actually been delivered that's positively impacted their lives. And, and I think that's why some folks that were like Trump all the way is saying, no, I'm not getting but, much here. But to what extent do they <coughs> see their, do they feel that the, they may be frustrated, but do they see it as a failure on the part of President Trump or that the quote-unquote swamp uh, is so aligned against yeah. him that he can't get anything done? I mean, in other words, how do they view Washington and Trump's place in it? Yeah, I don't, that's, that's a hard one, Dan, in as much as what drops, you know, what, well, clearly if his popularity was at X and now it's X minus 10, um, he's not absolved of everything. And yeah. They see him as part of the problem. It's been interesting in a state like ours, too, that, I mean, all the work that we did for healthcare and Medicaid expansion. Um, I'm not sure that anybody was all that excited uh, in my time in public office about the word Obamacare. But now when what we're seeing out of D.C., and including the president, once we've really gone a long way towards stabilizing health care, like that is an issue that really resonates. Mm. Yeah. Uh, um, I want to go back to a couple of things about the, the sort of the state of the party. And, and, and one is, um, as a red state politician, uh, what's your sort of relationship to the image of the National Party? In other words, um, do you have to keep some distance? Do you have to proclaim some distance? Um, do you have to defend being a member of a party led by coastal politicians like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi? How, how, how much of a drag on, on you politically in Montana is it to be a Democrat? Yeah, I don't. You'd start out in polling, say you're Democrat or Republican or an independent, there'd probably be a six or seven point Republican over a Democrat delta with a large swath of independents. Um, it's even interesting from where I sit, sort of your base premise of the Democratic Party, like it's some wizard behind a curtain that has edicts that come out along the way. I mean, in a place like Montana, the Democratic Party has been fighting for public lands because that's a great equalizer, whereas the state Republican Party and the National Republican Party said, let's privatize or sell off these public lands or transfer. In Montana, the Democratic Party has always said a great equalizer is um, our public education system. And my kids go to the same schools I did. It allowed me to be here. And 
in public participation in our elections. A way to say that um, certainly there isn't, if we localize elections, make them about the things that are important to us. You know, I don't spend all my time certainly with Senator Schumer or Representative <laughs> Pelosi, nor do I candidly think that when you look at what the party is, that it's necessarily just represented by Washington, D.C. or Congress, because I think more and more folks, not just in Montana, but other places are like, it's not just about making statements, it's actually about governing and getting things done. Right, but it, I mean, it, it does go back to the, to the issue of, it, it's not just that Democrats have lost ground in a couple of places, they've yeah. lost ground in a lot of places. So there's something about showing up, which is important, but there's also something about how do you reach the people who have drifted away from the party? Um, you know, the, the Trump election obviously highlighted um, what had been a trend for some time, but, but brought it home to Democrats, which was the erosion in white working class voters. No, yeah. um, so, um, and there was a lot of talk about that immediately after the election among Democrats. And yet, it's hard to say what has been done in terms of recalibrating in a way to try to reach them. What's your view of, of that particular block of voters? Are they, uh, I know you won't say they're permanently lost to Democrats, uh, but, but to I don't think to they're what lost extent? at all. I mean, I honestly don't think that they're, they're lost at all. That's where I'm suggesting that, if you look at 2016, we never spoke to those voters. I mean, everywhere between the coasts, maybe I'll give you Texas, were places to fly over to raise money. And if we're not going to turn around and say, you know what, we have things to offer. If we're not going to say, like in Montana, we've, um, you often think of apprentices as just you know, welders. I've increased my apprenticeship by over 30% in the last five years. A thousand different principal fields. People making money while they learn a skill. We've changed the way two-year colleges think. It's not about a degree, it's about a professionally recognized certificate. So we're seeing growth there. There wasn't that discussion, I don't think, even at the national level of saying to that white working class voter, we have something to offer you. And we have a path that'll get you along better. And certainly by the same token, we weren't saying, you know what, median income really hasn't raised. Health insurance costs have doubled it in the last 30 years. So more and more of your income is going to that, and you're not getting ahead. Here are ways you can get ahead. Check the governor's mic. Oh, I'm back. Okay, there you go. So, so I won't buy the premise that... Um, you do buy the premise that there's been significant erosion. I do buy the premise there's been significant erosion. And I guess I'll also, going back to Schumer and Pelosi question, I also buy that there's an attempt to nationalize all races. And what we need to do is localize them. Hmm. If you're a governor, you need to be localized in a race and saying, you know, look, when I was running, there were the... Um, TV ads with me and Barack Obama or whatever that might be to try to nationalize it. From that perspective, I think that can impact trying to say that we're all think the same and walk the same and do the same. And I'll concede that there's been significant erosion, um, but I also would say that in part because I'm not sure that we're all talking to those voters or trying to talk to those voters. For a time uh, during the Obama administration, there was a, a belief within the Democratic Party, I think, that, that sort of, you know, demography is destiny, which is to say, this is a country that's changing rapidly, it's becoming more diverse, a lot of younger voters, um, and that, that those voters tend to be more heavily Democratic, and therefore, let nature take its course and appeal to them. Um, and I wonder, uh, the degree to which it concerns you or, or that you think this is the case that that in a lot of instances there was more attention 
by Democrats on certain cultural issues, whether it's same-sex marriage or whatever, um, to the exclusion of the kind of economic message that you're talking about. In other words, that... No, I, uh, and I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. So what do you do about that? Well, you reframe and say that we should be talking about the public good versus a narrow set of interests. We should be making sure that everybody has an opportunity to achieve and attain. And I think that that's where, um, look, even if, I don't buy the initial premise, or at least I, being in Montana, I don't want to buy the initial <laughs> premise. Even if demography is destiny, even if you can piece together this geographic region or this group and this group and this group and somehow win a presidential race, you've lost the ability to govern. Because you're speaking in such kind of a narrow cast term to try to just build a electoral majority, but not a governing majority. So you have to go back to some broader, larger vision. I, the, the, yeah. It, what, what George H.W. Bush always called that the vision, vision thing. thing. That vision thing. <laughs> well, I think you do, and I think you need to make sure that... Um, And that doesn't mean you put interests and concerns of Americans or Montanans on a shelf, but you also speak then back to their values and back to the idea of we want to make sure everybody is succeeding and people need to think that just like there are a good sector of voters, that Donald Trump and Steve Bullock would both be fighting for them. Yeah. Um, that We've got to make that connection, and we've got to listen to them. In this Time Magazine piece, Tim Ryan, congressman from Ohio, is, is quoted as saying about the party, we're going to have to have a fight um, over the future of the party and, and in what direction it's going. You know, 30 years ago, when the Democrats you know, got beat twice in a row by Ronald Reagan in electoral landslides, and in the second case, a popular vote landslide, that created, out of that, created the Democratic Leadership Council, which was Bill Clinton's vehicle, not just to become president, but to rethink the, the party philosophy and to, in a sense, to recalibrate, to, you know, to, to figure out a way to put less emphasis on the things that were bothering people and more things that the Democrats could do that, that people liked. Um, in that case, it was a move toward the center. Your party at this point is moving to the left. Um, to, how, how comfortable are you with that? You know, even going back before then, in 1976, Mo Udall at the Democratic Convention says, when the Democratic Party puts together a firing squad, we do it in a circle. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and we're seeing that more now than ever. I mean, from the perspective of um, thinking that the only way to get through is have this internal civil war, I think it's a step backwards. Um, from a perspective of doing what we can to make sure that people have health care coverage, heck yeah, all Democrats ought to do it, but we ought not make a litmus test of is it a single payer, is it universal health care, how do we get there? Um, we can look around the country and say higher education costs, are out of control. Now I can say as governor that 44 states have actually increased or decreased their investment on average by 17% in higher ed in real terms 2008 to today. Montana's one of four states that's increased those investments. But before we even get in the fights of is it, all, is it free college for all or what exactly um, healthcare system should we have, I think we should be thinking more about what are the aspirations of a society that we want and make sure that in doing that, we're not narrowing the Democratic Party. So uh, Pew Research Center has recently done some polling about healthcare. And um, <clears throat> among Democrats, 52% now say health insurance should be provided through a single national health insurance program run by the government. Um, the share of Democrats who say that is up nine points since January and 19 points since 2014. Uh, among Democrats between the ages of 18 and 29, 66% favor single-payer 
um, and it's about the same for liberal Democrats. Um, if, if, if that's the prevailing mood within the party, um, how do you how do you push against that yeah. if, if you feel the need to push against and do you feel the need well, to push against that? Yeah. First, um, I mean a real frustration that I have is that we have nine days, seven days left now um, to try to make sure that we even maintain the Affordable Care Act. It goes out in front of the Senate Health Committee three weeks ago talking Democratic and Republican governors saying here are ways to stabilize it. So in some ways the party is also in a fight over what the next health insurance uh, delivery model or health care delivery model ought to be before we've even, you know, as uh, Graham Cassidy is still rearing its head and we could lose it all by September 30th. I wish we'd focus on preserving our gains before we go that next step. But but that debate's coming. Yeah. Um, and where do you... Let's start at October 2nd, not September 30th. But from where I, like, I think that we have an aspiration. We all should recognize what 18% of our GDP, we're paying more, we're actually getting less. And how do we do everything that we can to make sure that everyone has coverage? Does it have to be a single payer? I, that I'm not convinced of. I'm also, some folks really like their own insurance. So how do, you, how do you make sure that you take those steps where Medicare for many, people being able to buy in, might be a possibility? But where we are right now is trying to both, A, maintain any gains that we've had. And I often find, you know, and it's not, Washington, D.C. often mistakes saying for doing, meaning that be it on this repeal efforts, the impacts are actually on governors as we try to work with our states. And discussions about what sort of healthcare system that we ought to have someday can be great statements, but there hasn't been thought through what's the actual implication. Are what, are your what are your reservations about a single payer approach? A, I don't think that it is immediately practicable. We can get over that. Um, B is that I think you're going to have so much fundamental systemic transformation to get there that it's not going to be, in, you know, I mean, maybe by the time my kids um, are sitting on the stage with you, I think it's a great aspiration. And I think it's something that, like, all of us Democrats should be saying, how do we cover more people, make it more accessible, reduce the costs, and uh, maintain and actually up the quality. But to say single-payer versus a universal health care model or versus um, allowing people to buy into a Medicare system, yet still maintaining a private market for those, I mean, let's actually look at what the outcome we want. And the outcome we want is better health care for more people, quality and cost. What, what are the, what are the uh, attitudes in your state about immigration? To what extent was Trump's message on immigration one that resonated in your state? Well, I think, um, in case you don't know, we have 545 miles of a border. and We're not building a wall between Canada and <laughs> Montana. Uh, there were ads run by my opponent uh, talking about how I wasn't going to protect um, Montanans because I actually said governors don't actually get to pick and choose. Um, so that at least didn't succeed. I mean, my message was let's never let... Uh, terrorism to find the values that we have toward one another or to other members of our community. Um, I haven't seen polling of, you know, if it resonated that strongly, I guess yeah. somebody else would be on the stage. Well, one of the things that, that Congress has a clock ticking on is, is uh, the Dreamers in DACA, uh, which in five yeah. and a half months will go out of business unless something is done about it. Um, the President and, and 
Pelosi and Schumer supposedly have some kind of a deal. Would you trust the president on, on that? <laughs> Would I trust him on having a deal? Yeah. Or... I mean, when they say we have a deal with the president, yeah, uh, what I mean, was your reaction to that? My reaction is that, I mean, the president has said many different things or tweeted many different characters just about this issue alone. I mean, from my perspective, I want to see what the parameters are of the deal. But the idea of actually working together to come up with something, um, we ought to certainly verify, but that's the only way it's going to get done. How, how so I had that moment of optimism. Two, two, two questions on a, you know, sure. a deal like that. A, should, should uh, DREAMers be given a path to citizenship or legalization as part of that? And, and how much should Democrats be prepared to bargain with Trump on border security issues in order to get that. So not, nothing's been articulated on what the border security issues are. Is it additional dollars? Is it, um, but I think that we ought to find a path to citizenship for dreamers. I mean, the idea that, and again, one of the wonderful things about once you leave Washington, D.C., is I think that things are a lot less always framed as Democrats and Republicans. I mean, there's been so many actions in Republican-led states to say somebody that moved here when they were a baby and has known nothing else ought to actually be able to stay here and be a citizen. Um, any deal, certainly the devil's always in the details. Right. But to go down that path to try to say, here is... The same, the same thing with health care is we're trying to stabilize the individual market. You know, sometimes to, right, to eat an elephant, you do it one bite at a time. Um, if we could stabilize... Never really thought about eating an elephant. <laughs> I made the mistake of saying that in the Senate committee, and I probably should have said eating a whale or something like, how do you eat a whale one bite at a time? You take those pieces, if we would have stabilized the individual market and actually shown the Democrats and Republicans can work together, God knows it might be a novel idea. From the perspective of, um, I think that the Senate and House leadership has said, no, we're not going to do this if what the deal is is to build a giant, beautiful wall. Um, that would be a... Yeah. Non-starter, in your estimation. Right. I think that's right. Let me quickly ask you uh, about a couple of other issues that, that divide many Democrats today. One is obviously trade policy. Um, you, you mentioned you're on the border with Canada. Most governors that I've dealt with over the years tend to be free traders. I mean, they go overseas and try to get investment, and they recognize the value of exporting some of their products. Um, do you think of yourself as a as a genuine free trader? Do you think NAFTA should be renegotiated? What do you think about that? Well, I think we can certainly have conversations with other ways to improve NAFTA. Like that, I don't have a problem with. Um, I look at, from the perspective of timber, is very important in Montana. Uh, the Canadian Softwood Lumber Agreement is one where, well, it's not free trade. They're the Crown is subsidizing the wood that then comes into the U.S., which then not only hurts our mills, but keeps us from doing better forest health. Uh, I think we should look at each of the agreements on their face and say, are there ways that we could approve? But by the same token, yeah, I mean, we grow the best wheat in the world, and I think almost three-fourths of it goes to Asian markets. Mm -hmm. And recognizing, though, that Free, free trade is, I mean, it's got to be a multilateral free trade because if I look at what the deal Australia is getting for some of the products versus Montana, uh, there, this isn't free trade. And I think that it is fair to turn around and say um, bilateral agreements may be the best way for us to go. Oh, really? So the... The, well, I think it the, becomes the, difficult. The disappearance to, of the Trans-Pacific yeah, Partnership I, uh, doesn't concern you that much? Well, 
A, I guess I deal with the reality of I don't think that it's going anywhere. Yeah. And so how can I make sure that my beef can now go to China and my grains can go elsewhere? Yeah. Let me ask you about one other, and that is, um, you know, Montana's obviously a coal state, um, but it's got other energy, and I know that you've been pushing renewables uh, in what you've been trying to do. Um, I once said in other places we have the best wind potential if Texas ever secedes. <laughs> but I won't say that here. Um, uh, do you think that the Obama uh, administration calibrated it about right in terms of what they were doing on uh, climate change regulations? Do you think they, were, they went farther than was good for your state? Well, I think uh, the, the courts certainly you know, might have suggested. So the Clean Power Plan, let's just, Montana was hit harder than any state in the country as far as what our carbon reductions were supposed to be. Um, and we also have the second largest coal-fired power generating plant west of Mississippi that actually powers states to the west of us. It was interesting, uh, I saw an article like a week after the election and Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell said, well, all these jobs are coming back. And he goes, oh, well, the market did this, right? A lot of, when natural gas is a quarter of what the price was before, it's gonna have significant impacts on coal. Montana's a, I mean, we had the worst fire season in our state's history. 1.2 million acres burned this year. We're an outdoors people. We see that the climate is changing and we need to do something about it. Um, under, even on the Clean Power Plan that uh, coal had a role you know, for the next several decades, and I think that'll probably be the case, but what we need to be doing is recognizing that tomorrow's going to look different than today, making the investments in renewables and in technologies because even if the U.S. acts solely alone, I'm not sure that we're going to solve yeah. all the world's problems. Who are your political heroes or role models? Uh, you know, there was um, a guy, well, mo I, I guess I'd say most of my role models are heroes in politics have been much more local than national. And maybe that's because, uh, you know, the first guy I ever worked for was a guy named Joe Mazurik, who was the Attorney General, and he was actually the politics that times warmed down was about how, how are you going to impact people's lives. And um, yeah, he was the first guy I ever really worked for extensively, and I think he shaped a lot of the way I think. What did you learn from losing your first race for AG? <laughs> so. To step back, I was 32 years old. So I first went to work at the Attorney General's office. I was in a cubicle. I think I got an office finally because I have a loud voice. And like as a baby lawyer three years out, um, I had, it was a federal court case, James Watt group, Watt's group had sued to end our stream access laws. We have the best recreational access laws in the country. And I'm like, my name's Steve Bullock, I represent the people of Montana. These streams and rivers belong to all of us. And I'm like, this is the coolest job in the world. I'm going to run for it. And I'm not sure my whole family voted for me. <laughs> you know, I, I got killed in a Democratic primary. And this was, uh, and I didn't know if I'd ever want to run again, to be honest. It wasn't like you run. Were you just not organized? Or were you just not ready to be a... Well, I was running against a guy who was a county attorney. He's a good friend now. He's our chief justice. Um, he had run for governor, well-known. I got into it because I wanted to be attorney general. I thought this was the coolest job in the world. And I traveled, I worked darn hard, um, and then I got killed. And I didn't know if I would ever want to run again, to be honest. Why'd you decide to? Well, so, two different things, I guess. Uh, first, um, so I'm in private practice back in Montana, and minimum wage was $4.15 an hour. It passed one house, an increase. It died in the second house. This is 2006. And um, died on a 50-50 vote, and a leader of 
basically said, well, good, now I don't have to lay off people with disabilities, thinking that that is who makes minimum wage. I got incensed and formed this group, and I wasn't involved in politics at the time, called Raise Montana. We voluntarily increased the minimum wage by a ballot initiative. And that, I guess, got me back saying that you can't actually make a difference in this thing. So eight years from when I first ran and my whole family didn't vote for me, I was thinking that I still really loved to be an attorney general. At the time, there was a state senator who was kind of one of the main trial lawyers in our state running, the minority leader of the House, and people were like, go run for something else. I'm like, I don't want to run for something else. I want to be attorney general. So I ran in a three-way primary, and I won. Now, what I learned, back to your question of like traveling around the state, nobody knew or remembered that I'd run. But I think I learned a lot about what it takes to actually get around a 147,000 square mile state and to talk to people and to be in places that um, maybe the other two didn't think were as important and actually engage with folks. So I learned a lot more than I thought I learned. Um, and that's probably why I ended up prevailing in that election for Attorney General. Um, and we're gonna turn it over to you all after I ask this last question. So you formed this political action committee. Um, and when people say, well, he did it because he's got an interest in running for president, what's your reaction to that? <laughs> uh, we just got through an election, I mean, I'm principally focused on being governor. I just got reelected last year. And that's certainly my main focus. Um, I think that as we look at both where the state and the country's going, I may have a voice to play in that, um, to come down and get a talk with Dan Balls. Well, that actually takes dollars, and I live in public housing, so, um, so, so the PAC helps facilitate kind of the conversation about where this party and where this country is going. But, but and I what's think the what's the main thing you want to convey if you, in order, you, you if you would like to have a voice, what is it you want? Yeah, to uh, say. Uh, I mean, that how I won and how I govern, I think, I know has applicability beyond the state of Montana. The recognition that we as Democrats don't always talk about the values we all share and nobody believes we fight for those values. The recognition that you want to micro-target and slice and dice the electorate, well, what we ought to really be doing is showing up at places often where people don't always agree. People need to know that we're actually fighting for their good and the public good. And I think those are some of the issues, while it may seem basic, I think we've forgotten that a little bit. To be able to provide that voice and also work for, as you depressingly listed everybody that lost um, at the start of our conversation, but to say, let's fight for uh, progressive candidates that share the values and will move the state and country forward. Uh, the PAC, uh, Big Sky Values, will afford me the opportunity to do that. Good, thank you. Thank you. Um, there, okay, there's, do we have, well, we have two mics. Okay, we'll start here. Uh, just uh, identify yourself and fire away. Okay, my name is Ann Drum. I'm from Dallas. You started out talking about outside money's influence on state legislatures. Would you please talk about the influence of outside money on Congress? And do you have any opinions about proposals to encourage small-dollar citizen funding of congressional elections, for example, with matching funds or tax credits or vouchers? Thanks, Ann. Um, you know, go back to 2004, and $5 million of undisclosed money was spent in our federal elections. Last year, it was $183 million, that was actually down from 300 million the year before. Go back to 2004 and I think it was 60, uh, it, $63 million was spent in um, separate independent expenditures, 1.3 billion last year. What we have now is 
and we also know that about 90% of the outside expenditures are actually spent um, on negative ads, which I think are tearing down the overall system. As Attorney General, I've taken a case up to the Supreme Court fighting from the very premise of we had a 100-year-old law that banned corporations from spending elections. This is post-Citizens United. Unfortunately, it's a 5-4 decision called American Traditions Partnership versus Bullock that will live forever, saying this was the first case post-Citizens United. I think that we need to address money in our system, and especially undisclosed money. Transparency can add to that. The challenge with just a publicly funded system is there's more money being spent now outside of the campaigns than within them. So unless you can figure out a way to equalize that, it's still not gonna be without some challenges. But I do fundamentally believe, I mean, and we see this with voter suppression, we see this with both the amount of money and some of the actions that are occurring are trying to disenfranchise too many people where we're all equal on election day. And we've got to figure out ways that folks recognize that, and we've got to figure out ways to curb that money, whether it ends up a publicly financed for some to try to level playing field, certainly worth looking at. Um, we've got a little lot of work to do in Congress before we could ever get there, though. Sir. Uh, my name's Aiden Brady. And I was wondering, uh, a lot of red state Democrats have uh, pro-life or, or more favorable ratings by the NRA, such as Montana's Senator Tester. And so I was wondering, what is the role for those Democrats in, now in the party and in the future for the party? Yeah, I, um, so I was Democrat Governor's Association chair, as an example, when uh, Governor John Bell Edwards got elected in Louisiana. And there were some folks who were like, well, this guy's anti-choice. We sh Democrats shouldn't be supporting him. Uh, John Bell Edwards, by executive order, expanded Medicaid, has fundamentally changed the health of Louisianans. I am personally and have been firmly um, pro-choice and said that these decisions ought to be made by a woman in consultation, either with her doctor, her family, her faith, it sure shouldn't be made by me. But I think we gotta be real careful as Democrats if we're going to say who's allowed within the party um, and who's not allowed. I'm not sure that's uh, good for governing or successes. Yes, sir. Governor, my name is Brian Gregg. Thank you for coming down to the tropics from Thanks probably for cooler me. weather. I enjoy your state for the wonderful trout fishing. Thank you for that. <laughs> my question is a little different. You mentioned something that really caught my interest, the success of your apprenticeship programs. Tell us about your job, those, those types of programs in your state, and what did you have to overcome, or how did you pull it off? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the first thing you really, or I had to overcome, is getting the private sector, higher education, state government to think different. Well, that's you know, not easy. Uh, I, higher education always thought that it was a terminal degree that is really what the goal is. Um, but to help them understand that first of all, I mean the biggest challenge from my perspective in Montana right now is making sure that we have talented trained workforce and that we can fill jobs along. So to make higher education understand that you're actually a partner in workforce development. It's not always about a two-year degree or four-year degree. It might be about a professionally recognized certificate that the employer needs. Literally hired somebody that works part-time for me and part-time for higher ed. Um, then went also to the business world and said, you have this antiquated view of what apprentices are. Let's actually recognize that if what you need is a healthcare benefits processor, you're going to end up with a better workforce if you're paying them while they're getting trained and we'll work with you for a path. And then I went to the legislature and said, um, 
We have a lot of employers that need workers. We have people that we ought to be upskilling and got through a tax credit of, I think where we ended up is $750 per apprentice if you're hiring a veteran, because also we have uh, more military families per capita that serve than probably any state in the country that don't make that $1,500. A lot of these things, so there, on the one hand, there was nothing easy and quick, and we still have a lot more work to do, but to make employers recognize the opportunities and make our educational system conform and change to make sure that we're training the employees that our employers need. Thank you. you Governor TJ Costello from Austin. Hi. Um, been to your uh, hometown, Missoula, got a chance to climb up to the end, which was a lot of fun. Oh, very good. Yeah. Glad you were there, TJ. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, but you mentioned the fire season, the fire problems you had this year. I was wondering if you could talk about how you, you and your office managed the, the crisis that you had this summer. Yeah. I mean, we had, um, as I said, 1.2 million acres burned. On just about any given day, there were 5,000, over 5,000 firefighters working. We had two losses of life and it impacted communities all across the state. And every day I would have a call as far as the fire situation and what additional state resources that we could provide. It was curious in some respects or, I mean, challenging as much as Texas was devastated by the hurricane. But at the same time that that's happening, um, you know, we have people that are not only losing their homes, but been evacuated for weeks and weeks on end. So both uh, providing all the firefighter support that we could, I ended up by the end of mobilizing about a thousand National Guard soldier and personnel, working with the federal government for when from FEMA we could get both some grants and some aids. And I, that actually went well. Now the next step though is to say that Communities have been just fundamentally devastated by this. And we don't deal with natural disasters like fires, like we do with hurricanes and other things. And even to step back, uh, if you go to 1995, 16% of the Forest Service budget was spent on fires. Now it's over 60%. And it's not that they've increased the budget. We now just borrow from what could be done in the woods. I'm hoping, and that's Democratic and Republican governors throughout the West say we got to fix this. And um, not until probably TJ, if you came up in November, when there's snow, will all these fires be out? There's still right now over 1,200 people out there still working on them even today. Hi. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thank you for being here. I. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. I teach government at a community college in uh, Bryan, Texas. Thanks for doing that. Thank you. We send most of our students to Texas A&M. Tends to be a pretty conservative area. I'm a recent convert personally to the Democratic Party. When I talk to them about things like Citizens United, their eyes gloss over. When I showed them front lines, big sky, big money, suddenly things started making sense. So my question to you, though, is from where we're coming from in Texas, when we have senators like Cruz advocating for Citizens United, they often come at it from a perspective of Democrats are anti-business, Republicans are pro-business. What message do you think that the Democrats can change in order to start seeing Citizens United as an American democratic issue and less of a big business versus the Democrats issue. Yeah, and, and the idea that it's big business versus Democrats, I mean, I can't keep my head around, right? This right. ought to be about everybody having the opportunity to actually participate in our elections and recognizing our vote and our voice are equal on election day. When I was attorney general is when the Citizens United case first came up. And actually I wrote, or my office wrote the amicus brief that we had Democratic and Republican AG signing on saying the vast majority of elections actually happen at the local level. And it doesn't take a copper king necessarily or somebody to buy a 
county commission race. And unfortunately, uh, the court, from my perspective, I mean, they didn't have a record in that case. And they just threw out um, decades of precedent in coming up with a decision that they had. The one, we also recognize in the students that you teach, by and large, like if 18 to 30 all voted, they decide every single election. Um, but saying that the one thing that you have as students is that on election day, no matter how big that business is or how strong that group is, you are equal. And the only way to exercise that equality is actually by voting. Um, I've gotten to the point where, unfortunately, until we have a new Supreme Court, I have you know, a couple ideas of how we can at least do some work around the margins with sunshine and transparency. But until we have a court, we're going to live with uh, the Citizens United decision. But what we can do is actually um, shine, I think, more of a light on the money being spent in our elections. I mean, if political figures are going to be like NASCAR, you know, with all the different paid for by, well, then let people at least know who's trying to influence the election by the vote. And we're not doing that very well in our country right now. There was uh, this last election. So what this law that I passed, and the guy that carried the law was a former coal miner from the town of Coal Strip, Montana, Republican. He said, you know, if I'm going to be gut shot, I, at least I want to know who's shooting me from the shadows. But uh, so we passed this law that says 60 days out from election, you have to disclose what you're spending, I don't care what sort of 501c nonprofit status you're gonna to try to hide behind. In my office right now is the mailing that hit 61 days out from Americans for Prosperity talking about how horrible I am. And then we didn't see anything for 60 days. So if we can at least add transparency, that may be the most significant piece that we, we can do right now. And second, if your students actually think that Citizens United is about helping businesses, um, I'd love to come guest lecture. Anytime, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, we are out of time, but we'll do one more question and then we'll have to definitely close it off. But uh, again, thank you all for coming. Yeah, thank you. One last question. Thank you, Governor Bullock. Um, I appreciate you mentioning coal strip in the last answer because it's actually a good segue into my question. Um, my name is Jordan. I work for a wind energy developer here in Austin. And I appreciated your comments earlier on the environment and how to kind of balance the Montana's interests as a coal producing state with the state's environmental sure. interests. And I'm, I'm curious how, um, what role you see for public policy and for elected officials like yourself in um, moderating disputes, not just among those ideological interests, but also among competing economic interests, like among utilities, ratepayers, um, and the state concerning renewable energy, uh, particularly with regards to the current dispute between Northwestern Energy, the utility in Montana, and the Public Services Commission, after the Public Service Commission adjusted the cost mechanism that allows for utilities to procure wind and solar power. There was actually a Public Service Commissioner, I think Bob Blake, was caught on a hot mic saying he hoped it would destroy the wind and solar industry in Montana. <laughs> so I'm curious what kind of policy incentives you think can be put in place to prevent those kinds of disputes from arising? Well, well I think actually the policy incentives to prevent the disputes from arising like in front of the Public Service Commission in Montana, and I got a feeling you know more about what's going on in Montana than most of these folks here, um, we take legislative action and it's not without substantial challenge um, from that perspective. I mean, but what we can do to step back, and you and I can talk a little bit after this too, is like, I put out an energy blueprint a year before the election, said, what does Montana want to become? All right, let's set some tangible goals. Let's double our solar by 2025. Well, by doing that and saying, how can we work together on it? We've already doubled the solar um, since then. Saying at Coal Strip, um, okay, this community is going to go through some change, so we got a $5 million grant to say, what is that community change? But we also have this incredible line, this possibility. Um, 
where we need to keep it more or less energy on that line as it goes to the west, uh, to the western states. I have tried to both, well, both protected renewable portfolio standards from legislative attack and tried to say here are ways where we could get small scale um, wind and solar projects more. But it's not without some challenges, without a more, uh, I guess, a legislature that, w and they'll work with me on a whole lot of issues. Not, they don't necessarily want to work with me on all those issues. Thank you. Um, I've Thank learned you. a long time ago that governors are often the most interesting politicians in the country because they're all doing innovative things, and uh, so it was a delight to be able to question Governor Bullock today. Thank you for coming, and give Thanks. him a round of applause. Thanks, Dan. No, thank you. Thank you.